This is the Midweeks. Hello and welcome to the Midweeks. This is Rob, your host. How are you doing? I hope you're doing great. It's a beautiful, beautiful day in the middle of nowhere, Manitoba, which is where I come from. I want to talk about a few things today. I want to talk about human rights. I want to talk about um, The Bachelorette. This is an impromptu topic that I just, uh, I've gone back and forth about talking about what we'll get there. And then we're going to talk a little bit more about the book of James and see what he has to say to us. So human rights. I, I think regularly about the topic of human rights. And I, I have a lot of questions for it. So human rights are this idea that there are these basic rights that every human being deserves. And thinking about it from a Christian perspective, of course, in some sense, there's some truth to it. Um, for anybody who believes that everything is created by a creator, that it's created by one creator and not multiple creators, and that this creator is a moral being like Christianity does, that the creator is uh, the Trinity uh, that originates with the Father God and all of creation is made through the Son by the power of the Spirit and that this God is a holy God, he's a moral God, he's a God who uh, is pure and holy himself and judges the world with a sense of right and wrong and has uh, revealed his moral will through his law through the giving of the law and the Ten Commandments, and through writing it on people's heart through the conscience, the Apostle Paul says in Romans, um, the, hum the idea of human rights has some sense to it. Uh, the problems I have with human rights, and you know, I think about this regularly because we have the Human Rights Museum just up the road from us in the city of Winnipeg, and that's talked about. People go there, schools go there, this museum that addresses the issue of human rights, and there are some ideas about human rights that that I, I really wonder about and wonder why people don't think these things through a little bit more. When it comes to human rights, who gives them? All right, so our, our compass for human rights seems to sometimes be like the, the United Nations. Uh, they might have declarations on human rights every once in a while. The problem being that many of the nations that are part of the United Nations violate human rights. There are nations within the United Nations that have committed atrocities, have had governments shooting on their own people. Um, so where does, what does that have to do with anything? Can a group of nations that don't adhere to human rights regularly uh, get together and write down a bunch of words and declare that there are these things called human rights that should be upheld by some sort of international council? Sometimes it's a nation that decides on human rights. And so um, maybe Canada will have an idea of what human rights are. Uh, but how is that different than just law? How is that just different than criminal law? Why call it human rights if it should just be Canadian rights? Is this the idea that we're going to go to war against another country that uh, violates our idea of human rights? And so we have to go and intervene in other nations when they violate human rights because each na nation has the right to make its own laws. So is that the idea? Um, but ultimately, when we talk about human rights, the thing it emphasizes for me is not so much that we're thinking about the rights human has, but it's just rights made up by humans. A human right is really just something some people made up and started saying, unless there's a God. And then if there is no God, uh, 
then a human right really just is a list of things that some people might fine, jail, or kill you over. But there is no actual right and wrong. It's just some people made the stuff up and they passed it in a government office somewhere, but it doesn't actually necessarily attach to some kind of reality unless there is a moral God that stands behind that kind of stuff, upholding it throughout the ages, once everybody's died and every generation's died, upholding uh, his standard of right and wrong beyond just people. So the question would be this, you know, let's say Canada has its list of human rights and we're all excited about it and we're upholding it, but then some other country invades us, uh, wipes out our government, oppresses us, and just throws our human rights in the garbage. Do they still exist? Is it just like whoever has the most guns decides what the rights are? And there's something in our soul that rejects that idea that human rights really are just what gun people's guns get to do. We believe that they're is a sense of good and evil that goes beyond just government power or the power of a gun or something like this. And this is why a human right really sh should not just be called human rights. It really should be some sense of uh, divine law. Sometimes people call it natural law. Philosophers will call it natural law, just laws built into na nature somehow um, that transcends culture, that transcends geography, that transcends time. Yet still, if there isn't a God upholding those natural laws, they're just ideas and they die with the people who have the ideas. Unless there is a God big enough to rule the world, there is no such thing really as a human right or any kind of right. Um, and so this is, this is a deal for me. And what it makes me do is go back to scripture, of course, and think about what God has done. And what God doesn't do is give a list of rights, so to speak. He gives commands about how people should live. And so he'll say things like, you know, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods besides me. You shall not make an idol. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall honor the Sabbath. You shall honor your mother and father. Uh, no murdering, no stealing, no lying in court. Um, no adultery and no coveting your neighbor's stuff. So that's the Ten Commandments roughly. And what, what he does is he doesn't give you a list of rights that each person has. What he does is he actually tells human beings how to treat other human beings. And when people talk about rights, not necessarily human rights, but even just constitutional rights, they talk about them in the sense of positive rights or negative rights. A negative right is saying, you can't do that to me. I have a right for you not to do that to me. So an example would be, you know, a right against search and seizure. So a police officer shouldn't be able to stop me without a good legal grounds. If I'm driving down the, law, the street and I'm obeying the laws, I can't get pulled over for nothing. You know, there needs to be some sort of suspicion or maybe there's a roadblock or maybe there's even some sort of advisory of danger because a bridge is out or something like this. A police officer shouldn't be able to just stop me and look through the cars, just trying to drum up business, so to speak. I have a right to be left alone unless there's good reason to, be, to, to believe that I'm breaking the law. That's a negative right. Just leave me alone. Where we really get into trouble is where we start listing off positive rights because there's no God in heaven saying, or we don't believe there's a God in heaven saying, these are the rights I give you, and limiting them as well. Um, a positive right is where I can say, hey, I have the right for you to give me this. I have the right for you to do this to me. I have the right, some people might say, it's a human right to have free health care. 
which means that I get to go into some place and say, you owe me health care and you have to pay for it. And that gets very messy because ultimately what happens is you have governments forcing people to do things for other people. And uh, that becomes uh, like tyranny pretty quick. Uh, rights, rights tend to be in, in recent history listed to keep governments away from the people. And you have this bill of rights that are really there to help to keep the government from becoming a tyranny over the people. But when you switch that around and turn it into positive rights, things that the people deserve, then the government ends up oppressing other people for the sake of people who are claiming a right, which is, is not helpful. Um, rights need limits. And this is one of my big concerns about human rights is that there's nobody to really say no to any right. People can just get together and start deciding that the uh, Joe down the street um, I have a right to a, a really fast sports car. Down the street has one, and so give it. Um, and if you look through biblical history, which is a long history, Jesus says one of the problems, the bigger problem with the law is what people add to it. Uh, I think it was um, it was either David in the Psalms or um, at the end of Proverbs it says, "Do not add to my don't add to God's word, lest He rebuke you." So we often think that not keeping God's word, not keeping God's law is the big problem. And God says that reveals that he has an, a bigger problem where people will add to his law. will say God says this when he never did or God requires this when he never did. And that is just as much law breaking to God. Um, that's taking his name in vain. That's what that, that commandment is about. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. It's where you say God says you have to um, provide for me that sports car. It's a human right or it's the law of God for you to give me that sports car when God never said that. And that's a huge danger. And uh, that was one of Jesus's big complaints against the Pharisees is they treated human tradition on par with the law of God. Or in one sense, they treated their human rights as being on the par with God's law, which it wasn't. And Jesus rebuked the Pharisees about that and really worked up a bunch of ire because of it. Okay, so why is this a big deal? Well, there is this human rights tribunal, which is something Canada made up fairly recently, these tribunals, which I really don't like because they're outside of criminal law. Um, and there's a human rights tr tribunal case. And so I'll read a description. This is from the Daily Wire by Amanda Presdigiacomo. Um, it says, transgender LGBT activist Jessica Yaniv, formerly Jonathan Yaniv, has filed a total of 16 complaints against a female esthetician, most of whom are immigrant, or, or against female estheticians, most of whom are immigrants with the British Columbia Human Rights Tribunal after they refused to wax Yaniv's male genitals. The activist is claiming discrimination based on gender identity and is seeking financial restitution, claiming as cl estimated as totaling at least $32,500. Okay, so this is the case. There's an individual in BC, uh, a biological male who identifies as a female, and I'm sure that terminology is not up to speed with what you're supposed to say nowadays. But... Um, he wanted to have some services performed that included the waxing of his the pubic hair off of his male genitalia and female estheticians were refusing this service because that wasn't what they were signed up to do they wanted to only perform their services on women and they weren't trained to do that because apparently it's a different job and because they refused to do that service um, they've been taken to a human rights tribunal and could lose up to $30,000 all combined and probably have already been paying a lawyer quite a lot of money in order to be defended by this. So the lawyer's fees could be even more than what they might get fined. 
Um, this is a case of those positive rights where somebody thinks they have the right to demand a service based on non-discrimination laws. And there have been some cases in the states about bakers and some photographers who are um, uh, charged with discrimination for not wanting to be a part of some uh, homosexual wedding stuff. And so this is taking that same idea and moving it even further where um, some female estheticians could be by law compelled to perform services that involve handling male genitalia because of a human right. And I think this should be something that people find like a disturbing case, like definitely going over over the line. Um, and so this case is bubbled up. Apparently this person who's the complainant here um, has some really sketchy Twitter feeds about um, young women. Apparently he identifies as a lesbian woman so that he's attracted to women. And so there now has apparently been a formal uh, complaint that he was um, sexually making advances on an underage girl some time ago. Um, but the core of the issue, even if this person's quite unhealthy and maybe even involved in criminal activities apart from this, the core of the issue is this. Is it a human right to demand that somebody handle your genitalia? And this tribunal hasn't decided yet, and they may come out in favor. They may say that um, because of a, someone's personal identity, um, women have to handle male genitalia if their identification compels it. So of course this is this is this is a very troubling case, and I think that there's been some feminist uh, personalities in Canada speaking out against this. Uh, a couple have had their Twitter feeds shut down because of this, because of complaints against this. But this is really the trouble of um, the gr ex ongoing expansion of positive human rights. Um, when, wh where would it end? Okay, there's here's the next question. Okay, if this person wins and they can compel this kind of woman to perform this kind of act on their body um, against their will, what's next? There's always a what's next. Okay, at least with the Bible, the canon's been closed for about you know 1,700 years. There's been a an agreement that this is the faith, and if you read the Bible clearly you should see that there's this sense where God really does not want people going around saying you can't do that um, because when God never said you couldn't. Now there's wisdom and a community. I think there's lots of love required, but an honest biblical scholar should be able to say God never said you can't do that. And there's no, either by specifically or by implication. And a good way of, of just saying we need to have self-control with God's law because human nature is selfish, human nature is fallen, and human nature is to want to compel people to do things they shouldn't. And if you can get the government to be your, uh, your baton to hit people with, um, then all the more power to you said facetiously. So I want us to be able to think about this as Christians. I, I don't believe in human rights per se. I think what human rights are is an attempt to talk about 
um, the law of God written on the heart that Paul talks about in Romans, that we have a conscience, we have a law of God written on our heart, we know instinctively that murder is wrong, we know instinctively that stealing is wrong, we know instinctively that we're supposed to do good and, and resist the bad, and we don't live up to it because we're sinners and we're fallen, and we always make excuses for ourselves. But human rights, at its best, is going to be a way of talking about the law of God written on the heart, but at worst, it's going to become like every other thing where it is used to actually resist corrupt and transgress God's law because of human power in rebelling against God. All right, next I want to talk about this bachelorette fiasco. I really weighed back and forth about even bringing this up because it's such a a mud bath. It's such like getting into the, the pen with the pigs here, but it's also really funny. And so forgive me, it's tragic, it's funny, it's worth talking about. Um, so I'm just going to read again from the Daily Wire here by Paul Bois. Um, the the description of the scene from fairly recently. I don't I don't watch the show. I think I've seen maybe 10 minutes of it and it just so turned me off. But um, I'll let you know why I'm interested in this story once I read this. Okay, so it says after rejecting a Christian man over his views on premarital sex and rejecting another man with whom she'd had sex four times, Hannah Brown came away somewhat empty handed during the season finale for The Bachelorette. On Tuesday night, when she called off her engagement with contestant Jed Wyatt after learning some dubious details about his past. According to Fox News, Hannah Brown and Jed Wyatt initially appeared to be on their way to yet another rosy finale of The Bachelorette when she gave an emphatic yes to his marriage proposal. Underline that part. Things, however, took a turn for the worst when Hannah Brown discovered that Wyatt actually had a girlfriend at the start of the season. The first news I heard of Wyatt's girlfriend was actually the day after we got engaged, Brown told the host Chris Harrison, but it was just that he wanted to let me know that if anything was said, there was a girl he was hanging out with. I was like, okay, but what does that mean? Did you end it? But ultimately, he told me it after a week before. It wasn't a girlfriend. He was just hanging out with her. Um, and, and it goes on from there. And w what it actually turned out was that he went on to the show with a committed girlfriend, whatever that means. Um, and, and the idea was he was just going to go on the show to help his music career. And then after his, the publicity and being in the spotlight, the plan was just to go back to his girlfriend anyways. Um, and so this is the thing. This is what got me initially interested in this. This What it talked about with the Christian man in there, this started making headlines when one of the contestants on the show, The Bachelorette, which as I understand it is where you have one pretty girl and like 10 or a dozen handsome guys and they're each vying for her heart and something that's supposedly romantic. And at the end of the show, she's going to pick one guy and they're supposed to get married and um, ride off into the sunset and... Um, then go fight and find out they hate each other when nobody is watching them and treating them like celebrities and then going on to whatever they do next. That's the idea of the show. And so there was this one Christian guy in the show who had voiced that he, he wouldn't have been excited if it turned out that she was sleeping around a lot um, before they got married and that, you know, he knew he had a past, but he'd come, come to faith and um, uh, some sense of purity was important to him. And when he shared that with her, she got quite scandalized because I think she thought she was a Christian or said she, she says she is. Um, and she felt, I guess, judged and got really defensive and kicked him off the show, but had said to him, this is the line that really got me. She said, uh, Jesus loves me. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've had sex with people on, on the show, but Jesus loves me. And so doesn't really matter. That was the idea. And so the thing that caught me is just this idea, okay, um, 
you have this individual who's on this show who's um, having sex with at least one person of all these tenants vying for her hand in marriage maybe more who knows um, and but that idea Jesus loves me so that doesn't doesn't really matter what I'm doing and and I've been thinking about this because in my last message on on Sunday I was talking about this idea of meism I've called it meism or idolatry and it's this um, ev evolution of existentialism as a philosophy which became really prominent in the first half of the uh, 1900s and onwards which is this idea that there is no God there is no actual right and wrong there is just what people choose so who are you well you choose there's no such thing as an actual man or an actual woman or an actual human being you choose who you are what you are what your meaning is what is good and bad and what your destiny is in life and though nobody really calls them an existentialist that idea of life is just us choosing our own meaning and making out of ourselves whatever we think is important has found its way into almost every single facet of our culture because it's so appealing right the idea is you know whatever happens you are free to do whatever you want and no one can judge you that's part of it right that idea uh, there is no God, there is no right and wrong. You are actually free to do whatever you want and no one can judge you. And one of the things I said on Sunday was that when we come to become Christians, very often we'll take that same core idea of meism or existentialism and then just apply Jesus and the church on top of that. So um, Jesus then becomes the God I choose to be real and his job is to help me become the person I want to be and his job is to help me to live the life of right and wrong I want. And I think this is what's going on in this individual, right? She, she, she's doing what she wants to do and when someone comes along that makes her feel bad about it, maybe for a little bit, she defends herself with her Jesus. Jesus loves me, and so you can't judge me. That's the idea, and that's meism, that's existentialism, that's, that's doing that. Because if you're a, a mature Christian, a true Christian, a Christian who knows the word, when you're confronted with doing something wrong, if you don't know right off the bat if it pleases God or not, then you go and check with Scripture. And then if, if it's true that God said, don't live like this, then you repent and you don't get upset about it. Or maybe you are upset, but you don't attack somebody over pointing out to you how you aren't walking in the spirit or walking with God. Um, and you don't just say, Jesus loves me, therefore you can't judge me. You say, Jesus loves me, therefore I'm not judged by God. So I don't have to despair and I don't have to run away and I don't have to get hurt feelings from what somebody says because God actually loves me. He's justified me, saved me, and now I repent of my sin, which is sin against this God who loves me, and I turn to a life of holiness because that's where the Holy Spirit's leading, and there my conscience is clear, and then I'm serving God, and there I'm turned away from hypocrisy. And so when Jesus loves us, it's not meant to be a defense against valid pointing out of sin. And it's not meant to be a defense of just feeling guilty about something because sometimes feeling guilty about something is your conscience's way of letting you know something's not right. Something needs to be investigated. You need to search scripture. You need to pray and ask the spirit to clarify what's going on. A sense of guilt can be really helpful when you're sinning. Um, it's when guilt persists when you're not or shame persists when there's nothing wrong. When guilt and shame um, reject the gospel that you actually have been made right with God, then that's when the guilt and shame needs to go because it's, it's not based on anything. But in a case like this, um, Jesus' love is being 
called upon as a reason to not have to face what's going on in your heart or in your actions. And, and so that just, that seemed to fit in so nicely with what I was thinking about. And I was just like, ah, don't you just hate when this stuff makes front page news? Well, with this latest development that the Christian guy is gone and the uh, sex stud is gone. And now the guy that she thought was going to be her true love is gone. Um, it's just crazy and I laughed and I'm and I'm hurt and I'm sad for her and I'm also thinking what did you think was gonna happen um, and because you're on a TV show where people are pretending to like each other so they can be famous that's all that's going on nobody finds love on this TV show it's just a bunch of people who are shameless enough to be traipsing their romantic feelings and their their lusts in front of an entire country because they want to be famous it's that's what's going on and anybody who didn't get that is just like criminally naive and so it, it's so sad and tragic but at the same time i think for these two people a christian guy and this bachelorette who in some sense says that she believes in jesus i really think jesus is loving them i think when she said jesus loves me i think he said yeah you know what i'm gonna show you and i think what's happened is he's taken away all this stuff He's taken away all this stuff, which was 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 the signs of dead, death, and being spiritually dead. Because if she'd gotten everything she wanted here, then she'd probably be lost. Uh, so many times in life, God needs to actually intervene with something terribly painful in order to show his love for us. And I'm thinking particularly about King David and the story of Bathsheba. Remember, here's Bathsheba. Um, for whatever reason, and I, I, I'm the older I get, the less I think it's a good reason. She's bathing naked in sight of the king. So she has to be close enough to the palace for him to be able to see her. And she's bathing on a rooftop naked, and, and David sends his servants, and they bring her to the castle, and and um, he conceives by her. They have sex together, and he conceives by her. And then when she says, I'm pregnant, he arranges the death of her husband because she's a married woman uh, who happens to be one of his elite bodyguard, happens to be one of the 30 uh, men, his elite bodyguard. And so somebody who's sworn his life to defend David's life and has put his life on the line multiple times to protect Israel and the king, he has him killed. And at the end of this, he thinks he's gotten away with it and everything's going to be fine. And Bathsheba's now living in the castle and her husband is gone. So it's, everything's going to be fine. And the prophet Nathan confronts David explosively and pronounces that the baby will die because of David's sin. And David prays and hopes, and, but it's God's word comes true. And Nathan said to David, you know, God's going to forgive you. He's put away your sin, but the baby's still going to die. And what you have there is this case very similarly. David thinks he's amazing. David has not gone off to war. He stayed at home. David's let his lust and his desire to feel like the great king who can have whomever he wants take over. And when it turns into a mess, he thinks he can handle it on his own by choosing this and commanding this. And he thinks he gets away with it. And then it all blows up in his face by an act of God. Because God loved David and wanted to redeem him and not let him continue down that road. And so I see something perhaps very similarly happening here. And so the big question is, how are these people going to respond to this public humiliation and this public letdown, this public exposure? Um, they, if they humble themselves, you know, if they just disappear from the limelight, if they just go to church and get in a Bible study and start finding out who they really are in Christ and, and how they don't need this stuff to follow Jesus or to be happy in Jesus, 
fact, this stuff is like going in the other direction. Um, if they just go and love their neighbor and, and serve, then that would be a beautiful thing and a real sign that, that they are real believers and that the Spirit of God is at work at them in this. Um, yeah, a sign of repentance would be a beautiful thing. If not, um, boy, boy, oh boy, then it's just a really sad mess for everybody involved. So, hey, this is my advice. If this, any of these people ever end up hearing this for some reason, just disappear. Uh, go go meet up with some real friends who, who love the Lord. Go, go do a Bible study. Just get a basic job for a while and, and just disappear and spend time with God. Find out who you really are. Find out what it really means to be loved by Jesus. Jesus is unlimitedly forgiving. And anybody who repents and turns to him, God, he'll forgive with real love. Um, and this will be the best thing that ever happens to you, to come out of this and turn and just find the love of Jesus Christ and find a love for the Bible and pray to be filled with the Spirit so much so that you don't find being um, desired by a group of men in public important or you don't find uh, the desire to be famous and to have your most intimate parts of your life put on television for other people's entertainment, something that you'd even consider because you want to serve Christ and he's already filled up your heart and your life. So that's my advice for, for you, and uh, for what it's worth, I, I hope you're blessed one way or the other. I hope this isn't the, the, the story that defines your life, but is actually the story that defines when the turnaround came. All right, last but not least, let's get into James. Um, I, I could anticipate that this might be the least entertaining part of the podcast for my two or three listeners who are out there. Um, but I, I want you to hold on tight. Remember, this is the eternal stuff here. My words are just words, and they will fade away probably before the sun sets, uh, and definitely before my life, but the Word of God lasts forever. So what James writes here that I'm going to read to you is the eternal Word of God that will be in effect until Christ's return, and then I'm sure be some kind of part of worship even after Jesus returns. I, I will want to read the Bible in the new heavens and the earth, unless something happens that just makes it totally irrelevant, it's still the most beautiful book in the world. And I, I see its beauty enduring forever, um, especially when you get to see Jesus, the Jesus of the Gospels, with your own eyes. And I want to meet so many of the people in the book. I can't wait to meet Joseph. I can't wait to meet Moses. I can't wait to... I think Eve was saved. I think she came to faith after the Cain and Abel incidents. I think that's why she named Seth. Um, the Lord has appointed a, a, a son in, in uh, Abel's place. I think that's the sign that she came to a humble faith in Christ. I can't wait to meet her and give her the honor of, as, of, as the mother of all the living that she deserves. I, I want to go and meet Mary and give her the honor as the mother of Christ that, that she deserves. Not worship, but, but definitely honor as a woman of faith. Um, However, this is the word of God. And if you were with us last time with James, you'll remember that um, James, in my opinion, is convinced that you can always show your faith. And we talked about how perseverance is necessary in everything. You can't do anything without persevering because we live in a difficult world. So anything worth doing requires quite a bit of persevering. Anything at all requires at least some persevering. And being a Christian requires a lot of persevering because Christianity is difficult by design. We're saved by Jesus who went to the cross, who suffered death, 
and humiliation and torture for us. And Jesus didn't say, now that I've done that, you'll never have any suffering. He said, now follow me. Pick up your cross and follow me. So Christianity is difficult by design in order to mature us and grow us to be like Jesus. And we talked about how James calls us to rejoice in our trials because of this. And so let's read um, at least verses 9 through 11. Maybe we'll just do that because I'm going long. James says this, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade in the midst of his pursuits. So James is definitely having some fun messing with people's heads here, okay? You probably caught it. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. And when you hear that, you just go, what is wrong with you? You throw down this book. This is one of these famous contradictions. Everyone's always like, oh, the Bible has so many contradictions in it. It's like, you are probably illiterate. Um, and, And what exactly is your standard for a book that's written over a thousand years by a dozen or more people? Like, how do you gauge contradictions in a book like that? Um, so whatever, I, I'm making fun of it a little bit. Th- this is one of those people have turned off their brains and just say the Bible's contradictions that it was written over a thousand years of real history. What, what are you exactly comparing it to? But um, here we go, verse 9. The lowly is exalted, the rich is humiliated, or has humiliation. And James is trying to make us remember that the cross has turned everything upside down. The God of the universe suffered on a cross and died. Okay, so, so now all ideas of power, all ideas of strength, all ideas of success are turned upside down with the God who died, with the one creator God who died for sinners, turning upside down the entire world. So how we think about life needs to be turned upside down as well. And essentially what he's saying is this, um, the lowly brother is exalted because he doesn't have anything useless to lose. Where the rich person is going to experience humiliation because he finds so much strength in what he's going to lose. And so he's he's deceived or often just not thinking correctly and accurate about the life. This is the exaltation of the lowly brother. And it's going to say later on that um, the poor are often gifted by being rich in faith by the Lord. And that's part of their exaltation. God says, I, I haven't given you a lot of material wealth in this life, so I'll give you a lot of spiritual wealth by letting you have great faith in me. Whereas the rich often are self-sufficient and very poor in faith and poor in prayer and poor in seeing miracles because we have stuff. And that's part of our humiliation as well. We should just walk around. If you've got you know, a car or two and a house that you're making the mortgage payments on, we should walk around with a bit of humility saying, like, my faith is a lot lower than if I didn't have everything so easy. And so this is what he's saying. Um, Our richness passes away like flowers in a really hot, dry land. The sun rises on it. The flowers die. Its beauty perishes. And so the rich man fades away. And so there is a kind of beauty in wealth. You can own things. You can buy things. They're in a kind of like something to be enjoyed in life. But it's so fleeting that it's it's foolish to put any trust in it and it's kind of humbling to know you own so much stuff and take care of so much stuff that's almost worthless in in the eyes of eternity whereas the lowly the people who don't have all this stuff they can boast by saying like i i'm in a position to actually value what's valuable in life so i was just listening to um the interview that ravi zacharias gave to ben shapiro on his show which was just wonderful i thought it was really good it was it was often touching and i think that ravi zacharias 
out of many, many people in the world, does such a good job of honoring people when he converses with them. I think that's one of the things that's most appealing about him. He does a great job of being honoring. It reminds me of Paul when Paul was being interviewed by those kings at the end of Acts or those proconsuls, and he he knew how to speak with winsome honor to people who maybe aren't saved or, or maybe are pagans who could, you know, be treated with the blast of a prophet. Paul knew how to honor them for God's sake. And Ravi, I think, does a wonderful job of honoring the people he's talking with for God's sake. But he told this story about going into the Angola prison, which is, I think, America's largest high security prison, which is mostly housed with people who are murderers, manslaughterers, um, rapists, those kinds of people. I think there's either three or 6,000 people in there. I can't remember. So it's like bigger than many Manitoba towns, just of the worst prisoners. And he was he was going through there and he met a brother, a Christian, who um, had been there for like 20 years and got saved and was reading his Bible. And And Rabbi just asked him, how do you do it? How do you live this long in here? And his response was, you know, to hold on to the scriptures and say, you know, if somebody had put this book in my classroom for me to read when I was young, they wouldn't have needed to put it in my cell when I was older. And one of the things I was just thinking about that, that faith, that treasuring of God, that living in a prison, I don't know if he'll ever get out. I don't remember if that's ever mentioned in the story, but having the treasure of Christ in prison, that's an example of this. This lowly brother doesn't have anything worthless to lose. And so he treasures what he cannot lose, which is Christ and his word. Whereas many of us who call ourselves free own things, uh, we don't treasure Christ at all like that individual does. And so it's something to think about, and that's what James is pushing us to. If you're rich, and almost every Canadian is rich compared to everybody in the world and everybody else in human history, we should we should really walk in a humiliation knowing that we spend a lot of our time overly concerned about what we're going to lose, and we miss a lot of opportunities just to treasure what we can't lose, for God's sake. So, James. No matter where you are or what you're doing, you can show your faith. If you're rich, embrace the humiliation of knowing that you're stewarding a lot of useless things. If you're poor, remember that God has blessed you by helping you not have so much stuff to worry about besides him. All right, it's been the midweeks. Thank you for being here with me this whole time. I really hope you're blessed. I appreciate you even just taking the time to listen. And I I pray that the Lord Jesus Christ will fill you with his spirit afresh and make you make you see him as your treasure in Jesus mighty name amen <laughs>